Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled My Life of Rhyme, selected verse from my author, Chris Month, who joins me from New York State in the United States of America. Welcome, Chris, to the program. This is a, 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 a life work of uh, poetry, 360 pages, which is uh, pretty extensive. You must have been writing this for quite some time. Tell me when the first poem was written. Yes, the first poem, I believe, was written when I was six, seven years. Maybe it was after the hiding, uh, you know, during the Holocaust. So you, 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 just for my listeners, uh, so they understand what, what you mean by the hiding, you were in hiding for three years or so in Krakow, Poland, during World War II. Is that correct? Yes. I ended my uh, hiding when the war ended. It had to have been a, a very traumatic time for you. You had to pretend to be someone you weren't. Your family was Orthodox Jewish. You had to be separated from them and ended up being taken care of or provided for by a traditional Catholic family. That's correct. In fact, we were uh, separated. There were three families that took us in. They were related or friends, so once they, you know, a, a house was found for me, they offered some relatives so that my mother would have a place and my father as well. So we were separated, the three of us, but we all survived that horrible war. And many of your extended family did not, though. I mean, I don't mean to bring up the uh, the sad sad part of your life, but that was the fact and uh, may have provided the foundation for your desire to write. Possibly. The, the actual desire to write came because I, I think... There were there was a, another little girl hi and she wasn't hiding she was a member of the family right they, they, there was a lot of little poetic jingles and stuff like that and I liked it and I memorized some of them and then there was one that I really liked and I showed it to my mother and she said no you didn't write that I said yeah honestly I wrote it so my father joined the conversation and she and he said I won't believe that you wrote this unless you compose something right here, right now. Wow. And I came up with a cute rhyme, which is cuter, of course, in Polish, but it said something like, in our room, there is never any peace. My parents argued a little here and there. <laughs> and so that, that's what kind of started it. And then, you know, when we left for... Uh, we stayed in Poland... For a couple of years, I think I developed measles or something like that, so we couldn't travel. We were planning to go to Canada after uh, being in uh, France for a couple of years. And so that brought me to, uh, to Canada at age 12. And after that, I don't think I, I wrote every now and then something. I was a teacher somebody's birthday, I would write a little poem or something like that. And then the other things that interested me, uh, if I had like an emotion to express, I, I, I liked that, and I wrote about that. And also I was a teacher, and for birthdays and retirements and things like that, I was 
always asked to write something, and uh, and I did kinds of like roasts uh, where I made light fun of some of the uh, the teachers. So that was another, you know. And an uh, another avenue or outlet of of, uh, of your emotions. You have uh, again almost three hundred poems, probably in this in this uh, compilation. Did you keep those handwritten, or how did you preserve them for publication? Very good question. I don't think I ever did it for publication. I didn't think they were good enough to really. But I did my best, and I liked them, and so whenever I wrote something, I saved it. At first, it was uh, by longhand, because it was before the time of the computer. I think I got my computer in 1992, so everything I wrote before then, uh, I had saved, and then I just uh, recopied them on uh, on the computer. You have uh, an interesting story on how you decided that perhaps you should publish. I understand that another member of your family is a uh, is an author. Yes, that's very true. But mine were there for a long time, my poems, and we kind of... Mel was writing, and we knew that, and in fact I was editing stuff for him that he was writing. And then I guess with the last book, or the one before the last one, he said, why don't we do the same thing, you know, for you that we did for me? And I said, yeah, that that would be nice. So Mel, I gave him the whole batch, maybe not even the whole batch, just probably more than 362. And he helped me decide which ones I wanted to include, which ones either weren't so funny anymore or so emotional anymore. So, And he's very... Uh, very good with that, so he he helped in that, and that's that's what we. One thing I noticed about your poetry, you have incorporated a variety of styles in order to share your story and your emotions. How would you describe your poetry? Well, the rhyme is what I really, you know, very much uh, appreciated and liked, and word plays and things like that. So sometimes I would try. Uh, a certain style, like the Villanelle, I didn't know that before. I had never written one and decided that I would use that, uh, you know, that style. So there are a couple of Villanelles, I think maybe the first and the last in uh, in the book. And the sonnet I had not written before. Other than that, it's really like A-B-A-B or A-A-B-B, you know, that, that rhyming pattern. But there... They're rhymes. There's sure. maybe one or two that are uh, free verse or blank verse or something like that. But I was interested in, in the rhyming. And most of your poetry really can be uh, summed up by uh, by one page. I mean, you don't go on and on and on. These are are poems with a message that can be completed in a one page read, typically. Well, I think my listeners would uh, would love to hear a little of your style. Do you have a favorite that you have written or, or one that when you read or share with uh, company or with friends, they seem to respond well to? If okay. you have one, I'd sure love to hear it. Oh, let me, let me read you this one. It's called The Dance Lesson. Mm. Her restless eyes, they moved around the dance floor, 
when suddenly they happened on his face. He saw her, too, and nothing else would matter. There just was no escaping this embrace. He followed her outside onto the terrace. The night was ripe. The sky with stars was filled. He said, let's dance. I see you really want to. She looked into his eyes, and time stood still. She said, you know, I'm just a private dancer. I keep my heart away from dangerous things. He said, let go. I'll lead, and you just follow. But first, stand still and let me free your wings. He taught her steps she never knew existed. He held her tight and whirled her around the floor. She followed each and every move he showed her and did turns she had never dared before. They danced the night away in sweet abandon. The slow ones, fast ones, they did every one. And when the music stopped, a little sadness that it was over ere it had begun. She wiped the tear and thanked him for the journey. She said, I'll see you in another life. He smiled and disappeared into the darkness, and she went home to be another's wife. Very poignant. That would appeal to a broad audience. I think men or women would respond well to the thoughts that are included in your book. Did you have a, a specific audience in mind when you wrote, or were you just wanting to share your feelings with the world? It was more that the second. But uh, when I, you know, when the book was published and I gave away a few copies, a lot of uh, people told me that that is the kind of. Uh, poetry they like, that they can identify. There, there are a few poems about having children and, uh, you know, the, the, the children of my children when they were growing up. Now it was my grandchildren who uh, have grown up. So there was, you know, quite a bit, quite a few uh, about children and now, when when Mel was was editing or giving you advice on the book, were any of the poems that you had uh, assembled? Did any of them have a light-hearted approach? Uh, did he yes. allow you to do, to to include a few of those? Yes, I definitely did. I'm gonna read you one which may not be exactly that, but I think it's it's one that I was that I did want to read. Fabulous. Is that okay? Oh, absolutely. Love to hear it. Okay, it's called A Device. The passing on to future generations of what, through our experience, we have learned is simply futile. Our recommendations and all our help and wisdom will be spurned. Our children say they know what they are doing, that we should let them make their own mistakes, and, oh, they will, they will. That's what we're ruining because we know they have just what it takes. So if your daughter dates below her station and brings home Juan, a gardener for romance, do not bring up her Harvard education or that she is allergic to most plants. (laughs) And if your son is into transcendental and so must heed the Maharishi's call, do not remind him that he's occidental that he descends from Abraham and Saul. You do not want to see your children suffer, and so you often run off at the mouth. 
Your daughter wants no part of what you offer and just might take her wand and move down south. And when your son brings home his latest cutie and you are sure that he has lost his mind, don't ask, why's her hair pink? It's not your duty, and keep remembering that love is blind. So don't expect that your children will hear you. The chance of that is really very small. The more you talk, the less it will endear you. The only thing is to catch them when they fall. A lot of wisdom in that poem. Uh, absolutely. You you have included your life journey in your book with an addendum that also tells of your early years in Krakow, Poland, and how you uh, survived that and uh, the story of your other family members who did not. I uh, I personally appreciate the uh, the content of your book, and the poetry is, is excellent. It's very charming, uh, what you have done. Is there, a, an, is there an additional book that might be coming out in the future? <laughs> it's funny you ask that. You know, I'm retired now. But, of course, I was writing in my re- during my retirement also. So, and I didn't, you know, the 362 was not the whole collection. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if there's enough there for another book, but it's something that we've been thinking. And I have the best, you know, judge, because Mel will tell me if in all that stuff that I have, uh, if, you know, if there's enough there for another book, I... I I'm not sure. Well, what you have done so far is excellent, charming, and has a wide range of emotions that you've shared. The title of the book, again, is My Life of Rhyme, selected verse from author Chris Month. Chris, my listeners will need to get a copy of this. How do they do so? Uh, You can get it from Amazon, or we can... Would you like me to send you a copy? Well, I personally I have a copy in front of me, but would love to get a personalized copy, of course. But uh, this, again, they can do a search under your name, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, and last name M-O-N-T-H, just like right. it sounds, Chris Month, and uh, can locate this. And uh, maybe even, although we're not interviewing Mel, maybe even bump into some of his writings. Uh, this one, again, The Life of Rhyme. Amazon will carry it, and if you go to your local bookseller and request it, Chris's book will be available there as well. Okay. Well, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. You're very welcome. It was, it was fun. Honored to visit with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. 
and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Kiss. Ooh. Oh, well, that means keep it so simple. Finances. Okay. And my guest is entrepreneur and author from Chicago, Illinois, in the United States, Fred Green. Welcome, Fred. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. This is a short book, around 60 pages or so, and it covers some of the basics of life that most of us should have learned from our parents. However, as a parent who has been through a lot, you personally, uh, you decided you needed to share maybe a little more personal touch and information about your history and about the finances. Why did this book get written? Well, I was in my own businesses for 40 years and, and owned a number of businesses. In fact, when this happened, I owned three businesses. And when the crash came in 2008, 2009, I woke up one morning and realized that uh, I had lost three businesses, two homes, my last commercial building, and about $10 million. Ouch. And at that point, I knew I had to do something to help the rest of the world. But I think it was the good Lord nudging me along to do that. So you felt a compulsion to share your story and and had some compassion for other people in the same predicament. You uh, certainly were, well, I guess the easy way to say it is over your head in debt uh, at that time. Well, the businesses were. I personally really wasn't over in debt, but that doesn't make any difference. Because when you own companies totally, you have to personally guarantee them. So when the companies go, they're going to take you to the to the cleaners along with it because you have personally guaranteed the loans but yeah it was it was a ton of money but what happened was my last business was electronics and we were actually putting circuit boards together for people and selling them it was my newest business it was about eight years old we had reached two million dollars in sales and we were actually breaking even making money and i needed one more year to pay off very expensive leases at about $25,000 a month. Hmm. And when the crash came, we went from $2 million in sales to about $400,000 in sales in less than a week. That's incredible. Have you always had a background as an entrepreneur? Did you start off in business early and and begin developing other businesses? I started off in business early. When I was 24, I went to work for Sony selling electronic calculators. And in 12 months, I became a regional manager of five states and ended up managing the whole Midwest for them. Wow. Your easy approach, I would say, on this in keep it simple, keep it so simple, the KISS method in finances. Uh, There are some other acronyms that have been uh, associated with KISS. Uh, Yours is certainly a, a, not unique, but a different and a a refreshing approach. Keep it simple. This is uh, something that everyone who has a life wants to do, and that's get out of debt. What is your recommendation there? Well, really, if you follow the guidelines of the book, first thing is we've been romanced for, I don't know, 40 years, I think, into credit cards. Credit card interest is anywhere from probably 18 to 25%, and Mm -hmm. a late payment, you're probably at 35%. So the average American is probably paying almost half of their monthly payments in interest to different things, 
which is way out of line because they could be using that money to do what they want to do. We need to stop letting the banks romance us and get things done. And the easiest thing to do is start with credit cards one at a time and get that done and then review the rest of your finances, which the whole book covers, including mortgages. Because we've all been romanced in the 30-year mortgages where somebody's paying about 75% interest on the first 10 years. Way out of line. It is. And I see ads on television all the time about if you've got a an automobile, we'll loan money against it and, and those types of quick loans. Have you investigated any of that, or have you known anyone that has uh, participated in borrowing money from those lenders? I guess they're called payday loans, and I, they're right. even more vicious than the other guys, I understand. Now, I have not personally done it. <clears throat> I'm sorry. And at the moment, I don't know anybody else who has done that. But I do know what you've done is anytime you pledge anything, you're now pledging your car. If your car was paid for, and you now go to a payday loan and borrow $1,000, and for some reason you don't pay that back, I'm sure there's plenty of fine print in there that says they're going to be taking your car away from you just as fast as they can. And the legality is on their sides, and unfortunately the courts are on their sides. And I think also there there is no cap on the on the uh, interest that they can they can charge. I'm not positive about that, but I do know of some people that worked in that industry, and I think it was not uncommon to have a 40 percent interest rate on money borrowed. Yeah, and that's absolutely outrageous. There there were laws at one time that they couldn't do that, but I think those have changed drastically. And the reason I think they've changed drastically was because of the credit card companies, because when you do a couple of late payments with credit card companies, you are correct. Your interest can jump up to 30%, 35%, and that's absolutely outrageous. When you think that every time you pay it, $1 out of $1, $0.35 cents of that is interest, and with credit card companies, you don't get any principal interest uh, whatsoever to the amount you actually owe, because if you're making a minimum payment, it's like 98% interest. Wow. Wow. Your second chapter, Do a Monthly Budget, something that's difficult to discipline yourself to do. Uh, in my particular instance, my household, we have a budget, but it's all it's not written down in paper. Do you suggest it's written down in a tangible form? Yeah, I've given them a format to do that in. I've made some suggestions to them. There are a number of little things such as allowances and things that you should go back and actually do in cash. Give yourself an allowance, and let me just give you a quick example. Let's say your allowance for the month is $200 for anything you want. It's your money, and you do it in cash, and when that $200 is gone, if it's gone in 10 days, then it's gone. You've got to wait another 30 days to get it. If you learn to budget that, you now have $200 to spend over a 30-day period of time. And I do believe that most of us have spoiled our children, so they're not used to any of that either. So it would certainly be beneficial to put your children on a cash on a cash um, allowance, and then when it's gone, it's gone, and make them learn it. It's not going to be easy for some things in the beginning, but if you don't start doing this, you're never going to get out of debt. You live in a large city that has public transportation. Does everyone need an automobile? And if they don't. Or if they do have one, what is the best approach on getting a, an automobile and staying debt-free? Well, I, I do have a chapter on automobiles. And, and if you have a lot, very good credit, your interest rate on automobiles is not too, too bad. Except that the automobile dealers are making a fortune, and they tell you they're not making anything. They tell you they're selling a car at cost, and then you look at the $20 million building that they're in that they just built. <laughs> right. It's pretty hard to believe that they're selling you that car at cost. Okay? <laughs> so the best thing you can do is pay off your car loan as soon as you have paid off your credit cards. Uh, you used to have to pay late payments and things, 
And uh, I do not believe there are any penalties for prepaying anything today in today's world. So uh, you can pay that. Let's say your let's say your car payment's three hundred dollars. Your credit cards are now paid off. It's you could pay for an example six hundred dollars a month and get that car paid off. It's done. You still have plenty of expenses. When you look at that expense sheet today, just look at the cost of keeping up an automobile, gas, oil, uh, insurance. I mean, there's plenty of cost to keeping up an automobile on top of making a car payment. And I believe, I'm, I can't remember precisely, but I believe the average car payment today is somewhere around $400 a month. Wow. I've been able to avoid that by driving cars that are, are mm, a little older and debt-free. You know, that's, uh, that's, well, that's been my That's my, my recommendation. Choice. Buy a car that you can pay cash for. Take Fan- the money that you would be paying on that car and save it. And two years later, you can buy a more expensive car and you can buy it for cash because you can now trade that car in and pay cash for it. And if you keep doing that, if you get to the point where you really want, you know, a fairly expensive car, then you can go pay cash for it rather than let them finance you and, and romance you into financing. If you notice with everything, mortgages, car loans, and everything, they keep increasing the period of time that you can pay for trying to keep the loan down so that they can make the interest that they want. And if they make a payment or if, if an, an individual makes a payment above and beyond the basic uh, you know, basic basic payment, uh, that doesn't go to interest, does it? It goes to principal. No, that's what I'm saying. I don't believe it's there's any penalty whatsoever anymore in prepaying anything. And if your payment was $300, regular payment, so a good portion of that's going to interest, but not on a card, not like not like on the credit card, but it's still it's still there. But if you paid, say, an extra $300 a month, that would go 100% to principal. They just need to keep very good records. Yeah, you know, a, a simple example would be, let's say that you know you owe $3,000 in principal on your car, and you can get this information all the time from the companies and off the computer. And that means that if you were able to pay $300 a month and you added $300 a month to your payment for every month, 10 months from now, your car is totally paid for and you don't owe them anything. That's phenomenal. And the same principle also works with house payments. Uh, if you have, a say, a 30-year mortgage and, and uh, do an extra payment or two, that can bring it down to 10 or 15 years of actual payout. That is correct. But the biggest thing you want to do, if, if you're in a 30-year mortgage and you have the ability to refinance it, the first thing you want to do is look into a, a, a mortgage of not longer than 20 years. And mm-hmm. an ideal mortgage in today's world would be 15 years. So the book recommends the same thing that I recommended before. Everybody doesn't need a million-dollar house to live in on their way up. So if you buy homes you can afford and you pay for them and they're totally paid for, and now you wish to buy whatever, a bigger house, a nicer house, whatever it turns out to be, you've got a home that is totally paid for and may be able to start out with maybe a 10-year or 15-year, $10,000, $20,000 mortgage, and they get paid off very quickly in comparison to doing a 30-year mortgage where, like I said, a huge amount of that money, it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount of money. It's at least 50% goes to interest on every payment. Most people don't realize that. When no, you... they don't. I did, as I said to you, I didn't realize that. At one time, I had something like $8 million worth of mortgages on commercial buildings. Ouch. Ouch. What is the uh, the hope for this book? Who did you want to reach with this? I, I'm, I'm thinking this is information that maybe even a, a teenager might benefit from knowing. Okay, I've been told I have two four-star ratings, one by Pacific Review and one by World Review, and everybody recommends that everybody can take advantage of the book. And the reason I think wealthy people can take advantage of the book 
those that are super wealthy pay cash for everything anyway, but a lot of people don't know that. Right. But those that are just wealthy are probably leveraged to the hilt. And if they read it, they will even make more money and even have a better life. The book of my hope is that every person who gets it, and I believe everybody can get it and read it, that the good Lord will bless them with some kind of blessings. Fabulous. So you have a recap in Chapter 6. Explain that to my listeners. Is, is that the, what comes around goes around? That's the one. Last chapter in the book is titled, What Comes Around Goes Around and You Need to Give and Receive. So uh, after 50 years of doing these various things, I will guarantee you that what comes around goes around. The better you treat people, the better you're going to be treated. The worse you treat people, the worse you're going to be treated. So the better you treat them, the better you're going to be treated. And usually it turns out to be better for you than you would have ever believed in your life. And the same as when you give to receive. Everybody thinks they have to give money, and they really do not have to give money. They can give their time. They can give uh, lots of different things. They can volunteer at churches. I volunteer one day a week at the care center for Willow Creek Church, which is one of the largest churches in the United States. And that time is just as valuable as giving cash. And if you know somebody who's in trouble, you can help them individually. All of those things help. But something people really don't realize and I don't think take time to do in our world is to volunteer to something that has a great cause is just as important as giving funds to somebody. Fred, in a couple of sentences, recap your book for us. The easiest description of the book, it was written to help everybody. It's easy to read, it's easy to follow, and it's easy to do. And if you follow it step-by-step, meaning chapter-by-chapter, I believe you will be happier, healthier, and have a much more prosperous life, and the good Lord will bless you even more. Super. Well, excellent advice. The book, again, is very simple to the point, but has the practical advice that most of us need in our finances. The title is KISS, subtitled Keep It So Simple, Finances, and my author has been Fred Green. Fred, my listeners need to get a copy of your book. How do they do so? It's online at Amazon. It's online at Barnes & Noble. The book was published by Ex Libris. You, I, you, you can do that. I have my own website. It's called Fred Green Books. It's plural, fredgreenbooks.com. All the information on the book pops up. Uh, it's being expanded. The two uh, four-star reviews are in there. An interview with you will end up showing on there. Um, an interview with Stu Taylor, which was earlier, will show up on there. So they can get a lot of information, and if they really like it at that point, they can go right to Ex Libris and buy the book if they wish. Phenomenal. Fred, is there another book in the future? Do you feel like this is uh, something that is a cause that you want to continue advising people about? Yeah, I started writing my second book, and I think it's as important as the first book. It's called Scams and Investments 101. Scams and Investments. The reason I'm writing wow. that book is nobody thinks they're being scammed. and The scams that go on in today's world are unbelievable. And I explained to them the more money they make, the bigger the scams get. So I've been involved with scams where I had $100,000 invested, but I never got a penny back on. Hmm. So if the world, as the world goes larger and the population grows larger and people become less and less educated in what they're doing, and the scams today are just unbelievable due to the Internet and easy access and electronic processing of credit cards just makes it a paradise for the scammers. Absolutely. Fred, thank you for joining me today. I remember, again, that website is fredgreenbooks.com. Go there and uh, find out about this interview and about his subsequent books that will be coming in the future. Thank you, Fred, for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Honored to visit with you. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. 
Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on astronetradio.com. Back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is The Crossroads of Space and Time. And joining me from Nevada, Iowa, is the authors Charles and Irene Nickerson. Welcome to the program, sirs. Thank you. I didn't mean to call you a Sir Irene. Uh, you are the daughter of Charles. Apparently, you've had something to do with this book, and I haven't been able to uh, talk to you in advance to find out what that is. But, Charles, tell me a little of this book. What is the genre of book this is? How would you describe it? Well, it's science fiction mystery. Uh, the main character, uh, Tiberius, or Ty, is a uh, Secret Service agent for the Brilliant Secret Service. He's kind of a spy. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And and why, why? looking at your background, you have been in the uh, the uh, teaching profession. You have a master's in arts. You have a degree in history. How did this come together? What was it that, you know, sparked your interest in science fiction and, and this type of storyline? Well, it's really funny. I'm a classically trained historian. I was a missile launch officer in the United States Air Force for 10 years, and I just, I created these characters uh, when I was a kid. Hmm. I, they, they're actually based on a small toy my dad bought me when I was three years old. Really? Well, that's fascinating. Now, Nirene, since you have had contribution to this novel, I'm uh, thinking back to childhood and gifts and things. Maybe Barbie dolls. Was there anything that influenced you to contribute to this in a story way? Well, my dad tried to tell me the stories uh, one time when I was in high school. And I remember him saying to me, I'm telling you these stories so you can tell them to my grandkids. And my first thought was, I have a test tomorrow. Do you really think anything you're saying to me is going to sink in long enough that I can tell my kids? Hmm. So I told him he needed to start writing them down. So when he did, he was doing really good. And then he'd introduce a character that I would see as had very much potential. And he's like, yeah, and they're just going to be a background character. We're not going to hear from them again. And so I'd yell at him. Wow. So I just, I just <laughs> help with characterization, basically. Oh, we'll call it chiding. We won't call it yelling because I don't think there was any major family conflict over this. I don't believe uh, from what I have had in conversation with you. You're a theater major, and so you have a creative uh, bend toward uh, all things creative. The story itself is 260-some pages in length. Um, this is also a an offshoot of uh, previous works you have done. Is that right, Charles? That's correct. Uh Tiberius is a 
tertiary character in the other works that are based on my main character, Barry Maximus, who's his cousin, which begins with The Legend Begins, which is the first book in the series, and that falls into Andreas Prime, The Legend of Home, and then a companion volume that goes with this is Empress Angelina's Quest, which is the third book in the very Maximus series. In the first of, of your series of uh, four books. The back of your book begins a read such as this. It says, Captain Bancroft couldn't believe this resort. The beaches were pristine. The rooms were comfortable. Everything was so relaxing. The only area off limits was the northern beaches and on uh, an area they called the Trench. Where is this story? Where does it take place? What's the setting? Well, that's actually at the end of the book, and I don't know why they use that, but the the setting is actually takes place on a cruise spacecraft traveling between planets. They're heading towards the Aldrin system. All right. Uh, the Aldrin system is a system of planets that had been populated by an advanced race, and then one day, for some strange reason that no one knows, the population of those planets just got up and left. Just left. In mass. Okay. And abandoned the planet. And that left a mystery, because why does a civilization just one day get up and walk into history and leave nothing behind? Hmm. And since... Uh, and that is the, mis- that that's the mystery. In this country, with the Anastasia, just one day, several towns in the southwest that were associated with this Indian tribe. Just one day got up in mass and walked into the desert and were never heard from again. Wow. Part of your history history passion that's uh, filtered through into this story. You have uh, you have uh, written other other novels and uh, have this uh, wonderful bend for creativity. You mentioned this story actually began in your mind when you were a child. Did you keep notes? Did you did you have a, a diary system or a journaling system that reminded you of the details that you have shared in your storyline? No, they were just locked in my head. Uh, I was a very sickly child. Spent a lot of time in hospitals when I was young. Hmm. Uh, due to asthma, and one of the toys my dad got me was a three-inch toy that I thought was a bear when I was a little kid. It turned out to be a bottle of a giant ground cloth, mm-hmm. uh, but as a kid, I thought he was just a weird-looking bear. Right. And I, as a kid, decided that he had certain attributes, such as a layer of bone between his first and second layers of skin, that made him impregnable to, like, blades and things like that. And unbeknownst to me, when I was a little kid, and after further research when I was older, it turned out that the giant ground sloths actually had that layer of bone. Really? Between mm. their first and second layers of skin. You know, it just, uh, I don't know how that worked, but, but that's where the uh, Ursa Maximus species came from in my books, was that little toy. Phenomenal. Irene, as you contributed to the book, and uh, in looking back over the storyline, is there one incident in there or some action scenes that you think really stand out in the way it was told? 
which book? I'm having trouble thinking it one for Crossroads, but I know in The Legend Begins, there's a scene where Barry is out with, I think, the first officer, and they were just supposed to do a quick fly, just a scout thing, and they ran into trouble, and that was my favorite scene in that book. In that book. In, in the Crossroads Space and Time, Charles, which of those uh, nuances that you have have crafted, which do you think is going to be the most interesting? Is there a relationship? Is there a story? Is there yeah, an action uh, scene? His partner is uh, named Bab. Her code name is Aphrodite. And her code name is Aphrodite. She is hmm. a crazy, beautiful member of their race. And uh, he's her love interest in the book. And in Crossroads, there's a point where she gets hurt, and Ty kind of uh, loses it a little bit and goes after the people that hurt her. And when he gets back, he explains why he does what he does, because, of course, she's upset because he left her, and, you know, she's afraid he's gone and won't come back. Mm-hmm. The books, all of the books, but especially Crossroads, is about family, about love, about duty, about honor. All the books have these elements because I think they're important. Would you uh, would you think that might be a, a carryover from your time in the Air Force, perhaps, that, 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 that sense of duty? Uh, that's part of it, but it's also the way I was raised. Beautiful. Uh, the, these are things that in my family were cornerstones. Faith, honor, and duty uh, were just things that were expected. And I think that there are things that are very important that we need to show our children. Beautifully thought. And if you were to describe the ideal reader for this, is there an age limit or an age beginning that uh, would find this uh, an attractive story to to immerse themselves in? Uh, My daughter likes to point out it's really designed for high schoolers. Uh, There are some scenes in the book that I think may not be appropriate for Anyone under 13. Hmm. Uh, they are not explicit, but they are uh, hinted. Sure. Because, I mean, I do have a married couple in the book. Gotcha. Have you had any feedback from not this story necessarily, but your other books, uh, as far as your writing style? Any, any responses that have encouraged you to keep going and writing more? Uh, the people that have read my books like them. It's just like any other thing you're trying to break into. This is, you know, writing is a difficult field to break into because there's a million good authors out there. Yes. And, you know, anytime you're trying to break into writing, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, If you're doing it because you're hoping to get rich, you're just really deluding yourself. The reason a person writes is because they want to be a storyteller. They want to tell their story. And uh, that's what I want. I want people to read my stories because I want to tell them. And I've got two more books I'm working on. Of the, I've got a prequel I'm writing, which, take my advice, never write a prequel. Uh, <laughs> and I've got a follow-on to this book that is finished and I'm editing. It, 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 writing is like anything else. It's almost a disease. <laughs> right. You, to do it. it. It's just something you, once you start, you have to do. 
you have to have a passion for it, for sure. And you've described this as a science fiction novel where the main characters are bears. That's unique in itself. Were there any challenges that you weren't anticipating in writing this this specific novel, The Crossroads of Space and Time? The only thing is, um, as a trained historian, I'm very worried about plagiarism. And I do use the idea of gate travel mm-hmm. in this book. So in the, I had to be careful to lay out the historical foundation of why that is something that is not owned by anybody. I mean, Edward Rice Burrow was the first one to use the idea of gate travel in his writing. Yes. And then it's been used by Gene Roddenberry. It's been used by people who did Babylon 5, by Stargate SG-1. I mean, it's been used by authors for over a hundred years. I, I wanted to point out that it's really, it's in the genre, it's not owned by anybody. Correct. Wonderful job on presenting this. This is, uh, again, a sort of an extension of four books in a series that you've already completed. The title of this one is The Crossroads of Space and Time. My listeners will want to get a copy of this or maybe get a preview of how the story unfolds. Share with us where we can get a copy. Uh, you can get it from Xlieber. Or Amazon.com carries it. And on Amazon, it's available both in hard copy and for your Kindle, if you have a Kindle. Personally, I like hard copies, but Kindles are great, too. I think if you read it, you'll love it because it is a good story. It has everything. It's a love story. It's a mystery. It has action. It's just a good story. And more to come in the future. You've already uh, hinted that there may be something in the works or something is in the works and will be released soon. Do you have a website developed yet, or is that something that's in the future? It's something that's still being worked on. The next book in the series is going to be called Homecoming. Wonderful. should hopefully be out sometime this fall or early next spring. Thank you for joining me today. Again, my author... Charles and Irene, last name Nickerson, N-I-C-K-E-R-S-O-N, so you can do a search under Charles Nickerson, and in this particular release, Charles and Irene Nickerson, and find out about what has been released, what's available in the marketplace, and how to get a copy of it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, sir. Best of luck in the future. Thanks, Irene, and best of luck in your career as well. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.